Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to another show where we try to provide reasons for our belief that the Bible is actually true. I assume everyone's aware that the idea is out there in culture, everywhere, that the Bible can't be true, that it's been proven false. Well, let's try to address this in a little more specific manner. Let's deal with a couple of facts here. Consensus science claims that the Big Bang and evolution are fact, and that would be stellar evolution, the evolution of stars and galaxies, solar system evolution, uh, life from non-life on the Earth, chemical evolution, humans and all other life developed by biological evolution from a common ancestor. It's also claimed that geology has proven that there was never a global flood on the earth. Now contrast that with what a plain reading of the Bible shows. Well, from the Old Testament, Adam and Eve were real people created by God. All humans descended from Adam and Eve. The earth is about 6,000 years old. Noah's flood was physically global. There was no death prior to the sin of Adam and Eve. Different languages were directly created by God at the Tower of Babel. And then additionally from the New Testament, Jesus was conceived miraculously. He was also resurrected from the dead. And the New Testament treats the Old Testament ideas as factual history as well. Now, clearly, both of these sets of beliefs cannot be true. Secular scholars think the Bible is just nonsense. Many Christian scholars are so convinced that science has proven its claims that they must reinterpret the Bible to accommodate these facts. Liberal scholars just claim the Bible is mythical and not true in any kind of historical or physical sense at all. Some who say they believe the Bible is true will tell you the Bible doesn't really teach anything about history. God just uses stories to convey, quote, spiritual truths. I'd like to know what the difference is between a spiritual truth and any other truth, wouldn't you? It seems to be that I can claim something is spiritually true if it has no reference to the real world. Let's think for a minute about that idea that God is using stories to convey spiritual truths. Why would God not use true stories, in the physical sense, to convey these spiritual truths? It's often claimed, for instance, that the creation account in Genesis is there just to convey the spiritual idea that God is creator. However, the details of the account simply never happened. It isn't meant to convey history. Well, why would God not use a historically accurate account to convey the fact that he is the creator? Well, it's often claimed that God couldn't do that. The people that the Old Testament was written for and by were pre-scientific people who would not be able to understand the real truth. In other words, it's as if God were saying, You can't handle the truth! 
But is it really true that God could not have communicated those concepts, the Big Bang and biological evolution, to those pre-scientific people? Well, Terry Mortensen has a Ph.D. in the history of geology as well as a Master in Divinity, and he's been involved in this discussion for many, many years as a creationist, and he'd heard that claim so many times that God couldn't have told them what really happened that he decided to write an account using just the terminology common to this portion of the Old Testament and that would obviously be understandable by those people. So listen to this. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, he expanded a small grain of dust and said, Let there be light. And it eventually became so. From this grain of dust, over many great ages, he formed the stars and then the sun and finally, after a long time, the earth and the moon. And the earth was hot and dry. There was no water anywhere on the earth. Slowly God caused the seas to come forth, and from the water he formed exceedingly small creatures in the sea, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply, and be slowly changed into fish and plants of the sea, and creeping things, and animals and plants on the land, and birds in the sky. And after thousands upon multiplied thousands of years, as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore, it was so. But in those days there were terrors on the land and in the sky, and many also fell prey to a host of terrible plagues. Animals were eating each other and killing with poisonous stings, and from time to time many of the creatures that God had made died and were buried and were no more, but new ones arose to take their place. Then after a further number of long ages, God said, Let us make man in our image. So God took one of the animals that had arisen, which looked like a man but was not, and God breathed his spirit into this creature so that it was changed into a man. And God called him Adam. In like manner God made a woman also, and Adam called her Eve. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it was so. And from this first pair came all the people of the earth. And after many generations, those people who lived in the land around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, called Assyria, became exceedingly wicked. God found only Noah to be righteous on the earth, and he said, I will bring a flood to destroy all the sinful people. So God told Noah, Take your wife and your three sons and their wives and your animals and move to the land that I will show you. There I will protect you from the flood that will soon come upon Assyria and this people. And Noah and his family obeyed God, and they alone were saved, along with their animals. All the other people in that land of Assyria died, along with some of the creatures there. The birds which had flown away once the waters began to rise returned soon after. And Noah and his family multiplied and gradually divided into different languages and tribes and spread over all the earth. From one of those tribes, God called a man named Abraham. So there's an account of Genesis according to evolution. Dr. Mortensen continued and said, Having read this fictitious rewriting of Genesis 1-11, through if one now reads the real biblical text, the contrast is stark. If God created over millions of years and flooded the earth with merely a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley, he could not have been more misleading. Conversely, 
If God, one, created the universe and everything in it in six literal days about 6,000 years ago, then, two, cursed the whole creation when Adam sinned, and then about 1,600 years later, three, judged the whole world with a global, catastrophic, world-rearranging flood at the time of Noah, and then four, supernaturally created different languages at the Tower of Babel to precipitate the formation of nations, then we must ask this question. If God really did all this, how could he possibly have said it more clearly than he has in Genesis? God has spoken in his written word. Will we believe what it plainly says? Or will we allow evolutionists and Christian leaders and theologians who have been influenced by them to twist Genesis out of all recognition by the various old earth and evolutionary reinterpretations to make it say something radically different. I personally agree with Dr. Mortensen. I believe that God, who made man in his own image, is able to communicate with us accurately and factually, and that there's no barrier there where God had to tell people a fictional story. Plus, that doesn't make sense anyway, as Dr. Mortensen's account shows. If God used the Big Bang and evolution, he could very easily have communicated those facts to the pre-scientific readers of the early chapters of Genesis. That is not a problem at all. That is what's called a red herring. It is a false excuse for avoiding the obvious. Let's consider the Big Bang specifically. Is that a scientifically objective theory? Or is it somehow based upon faith-based beliefs? You might be surprised. Stephen Hawking, one of the major players in the development of the Big Bang cosmology, in his book written with George Ellis, The Large-Scale Structure of Space-Time, he admitted that scientists, quote, are not able to make cosmological models without some mixture of ideology, end quote. Now, ideology is a faith-based belief, but the ideology that Hawking is speaking about is the assumption that there's no purpose to the universe. Hawking is an atheist, and this is an explicitly anti-God, anti-Bible assumption. It's usually called the Copernican or cosmological principle, and is essentially the assumption of uniformity. That is, all the points within the universe are essentially the same. There are no special places at all, and thus, of course, man cannot be special, and the universe was not made specially for man. Those are corollaries to this assumption. Is this ideology required to do the science of cosmology? Well, George Ellis wrote the following. I mentioned he was Hawking's co-author. He was also a distinguished professor of complex systems in the Department of Mathematics and Applied Mathematics and is considered one of the world's leading theorists in cosmology. He was profiled in Scientific American, and they quoted him as stating the following. People need to be aware that there is a range of models that could explain the observations. For instance... I can construct you a spherically symmetrical universe with Earth at its center, and you cannot disprove it based on observations. 
you can only exclude it on philosophical grounds. What I want to bring into the open is the fact that we are using philosophical criteria in choosing our models. A lot of cosmology tries to hide that. George Ellis is making a very important statement about this. By the way, a spherically symmetrical universe with the Earth at its center, that was sort of the common sense view of the universe, spherically symmetrical, like a beach ball. That's what most people think the universe is like anyway. That's not what Big Bang theorists think it is like. They had to construct a geometry of space where there is no center. Why do they have to do that? Well, because it looks like we're near the center. So in order to avoid the appearance of some kind of special place for the Earth and thus for mankind, we just develop a geometry where every point looks like a center. That's this concept of uniformity. Now, is Ellis the only one making a statement like this and Hawking's admission that ideology involved? How about Richard Feynman? He was an American theoretical physicist, well known for his work in quantum mechanics, quantum electrodynamics, the physics of superfluidity of supercooled liquid helium, and other things. It is said that during his lifetime, Feynman became one of the best-known scientists in the world. In a 1999 poll of 130 leading physicists worldwide by the British journal Physics World, he was ranked as one of the 10 greatest physicists of all time. Well, what did Feynman have to say about this? He said, I suspect that the assumption of uniformity of the universe reflects a prejudice born of a sequence of overthrows of geocentric ideas. It would be embarrassing to find, after stating that we live in an ordinary planet about an ordinary star in an ordinary galaxy, that our place in the universe is extraordinary. To avoid embarrassment, we cling to the hypothesis of uniformity. So I hope it's clear that the Big Bang is built solidly on top of purely anti-Christian philosophical assumptions that are not required to do the science. It was a position taken by atheists to avoid the appearance of design and purpose in the physical cosmos. And I find it ironic that so much of the Christian church has adopted the Big Bang as if it were factual and proven, which it is certainly not proven, and decided that since it claims there's a beginning, that beginning must be where God did it. And the Big Bang is true. The previous cosmology that was the dominant scientific thought, the dominant atheist scientific thought, was that the universe was eternal. Well, an eternal universe has a lot of problems with the laws of science. An eternal universe would long ago have succumbed to entropy, and we would have what is termed a heat death, meaning there's the only energy in the entire universe is a common temperature absolutely everywhere, and there is no usable energy at all and nothing going on. The heat death, by the way, is what is considered the ultimate fate of this universe by some. 
Now, most of the public is unaware because the Big Bang controls uh, the press, most of the announcements in physics, most of the funding in physics, most of the PhD chairs and professorships, etc. You better believe in the Big Bang or you can have uh, problems in academia. But nonetheless, there is a growing number of physicists and cosmologists, many of them atheists, that have big problems with the Big Bang. There are secular cosmologists that have begun to work with alternative geometries in order to resolve many of the problems with the Big Bang. We'll look at some of those problems on a later show. That's of particular interest to me. At any rate, some of these secular cosmologists are actually entertaining the idea of a spherically symmetrical universe that has a center. Exactly what Ellis said could be constructed from the data. In addition, there are several Christian creationist physicists that are also cosmologists that are working on the construction of cosmological models that are actually completely consistent with an Earth created within six literal days as recorded in Genesis 1. So despite the impression that's out there, the standard Big Bang model is not the only game in town. In addition, for you Christian Big Bangers, you may be aware, but you certainly need to be aware of the fact that they're working hard to get around that nasty problem of an ultimate beginning, the very point where you're trying to insert God into the history of the universe, He lit the fuse for the Big Bang or some such statement. The attempts to define away the beginning through a multi-world or a multiple universe type of scenario where this universe is just one of potentially infinitely many universes that are all out there in a quantum foam and every possible universe, no matter how improbable, and this one is admitted to be extremely improbable, or designed, one of the two, but we can't go there. It can't be designed, because that would imply a designer. So it's improbable. But all of these improbable universes exist because an infinite number of universes exist. So I hope that you can see that the Big Bang is philosophically based and is not a proof of the existence of God. But what about biology? Is it based on objective data, or is it also based upon philosophical or ideological assumptions? Well, consider what Richard Dawkins had to say. It's absolutely safe to say that if you meet someone who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Dawkins also wrote, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Then he proceeds to argue that they're not designed. Well, from his perspective, life cannot be designed because Dawkins believes there is no designer. So if it looks designed, that's an illusion. His worldview overrides the obvious conclusion of his scientific observations. The conclusion that it's designed is unacceptable, so let's move on and figure out how to try to explain it as undesigned. Dr. 
Scott Todd, the immunologist at Kansas State University, said it pretty darn clearly when talking about his objections to the notion that intelligent design, which is the science of trying to recognize from the data whether or not it points toward an intelligent cause. He said, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. So you can see both Dawkins and Todd use their materialist, atheist worldview as a pair of glasses through which they look at all the data when they examine life. It simply doesn't matter that it looks designed. It can't be. Now, that is not what most people would think of as purely objective reasoning. It is not letting the data lead you to wherever it would lead you. Another very good example of how a materialist worldview will cause a brilliant scientist to ignore the obvious and reach for another conclusion is Francis Crick. At the panspermiatheory.com website, under the subject of directed panspermia, it says, The late Nobel Prize winner, Professor Francis Crick, along with British chemist Leslie Orgel, proposed the theory of directed panspermia in 1973. A co-discoverer of the double helical structure of the DNA molecule, Crick found it impossible that the complexity of DNA could have evolved naturally. So what did these two brilliant scientists believe? They believed that the evidence showed them that life could not have risen naturalistically on the earth. But since they were committed atheists, their conclusion was it must have happened somewhere else in the universe. First, notice that moves the problem beyond observation, which is outside of science. Second, notice the, this interestingly conflicts with the assumption of uniformity. Because according to Crick, natural laws must operate differently or the conditions must be very different somewhere else in the universe in order so that life could have evolved from non-life without a creator. But that is precisely opposite of the assumption that the earth is in no way special nor is any other location in any way special or different. So it's pretty obvious that the origin of life is also completely driven by ideology, an atheist ideology. And as for the idea that evolution and religion can coexist, let's not forget what atheist biology professor William Provine said. Belief in modern evolution makes atheists of people one can have a religious view that is compatible with evolution only if the religious view is indistinguishable from atheism. Now, I noted on my last show that theistic evolutionists who say both religion and evolution are true seem to basically just say God used evolution, but I can't find any real details from them. I believe it's fair to say that this view is indistinguishable from atheism, as far as how it views the physical world. 
So in summary, you need to understand that it's not the case of raw data leading all by itself to a conclusion, but rather the case of two competing sets of assumptions that can be used to interpret that data. Materialism, or at least functional materialism, regarding the evolution of the universe and life, or the biblical worldview in which the Bible is true, and it claims there's evidence of the Creator contained within the creation itself, and that we can understand it. So what can a skeptic do? What you can do is to look carefully and see how well these competing belief systems match with the observational data around us. We will continue to provide you evidence that the biblical model is in fact true. Please see creationmythormiracle.com for more info. Mm-hmm.